This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with teacher and tennis coach Philippa Callahan. He discusses ecological dynamics and the use of this within tennis, his shift towards constraint-based coaching and how this helped him improve his game, as well as the athletes he works with, as well as discussion around repetitive home practice. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, Philip, um, really excited to have you on. I know that we um, probably touched base a couple of months ago. You've been quite busy. I've been quite busy, but we finally got uh, this in a diary, which is awesome. How are things your end? Are you all good? Yeah, all good here. Um, getting ready to go back to school. So um, starting back this week. So it's um, kind of looking forward to it, but um, it'll be weird being back after kind of the summer off. I can imagine it's the same as uh, the kids as well. As part of you is looking forward to going back and seeing all your friends and colleagues and stuff. And the other side of you is like, I've quite enjoyed not having to get up and mark a load of assignments, etc. So, yeah, I don't envy you for that space. Um, for people that maybe don't don't know you, haven't come across uh, any of your work or podcasts before, do you want to give us a bit of an oversight, of, I guess, of who you are? Um, and we caught up off, off air there, and probably the two main strings to your bow in terms of what you do from a day-to-day basis. Yeah, um, so I, my day job is a PE teacher, and I, I do a bit of tennis coaching as well. Um, I suppose, like, my main interest is in um the kind of skill acquisition world um like i haven't done any say like masters or phd or whatever but it was something that i kind of got interested in while i was studying to be a p teacher and then um i spent a lot of time like reading and researching and stuff in my own time and about two or three years ago i suppose i started to share um some content online and um that's kind of most of it. That's kind of it in a nutshell, I suppose. Perfect. So, yeah, let's delve into that. So what drew you towards the the skill acquisition piece? As you said, I think PE teaching, from my understanding, you have quite a broad spectrum of what you have to learn and be able to cover. And what was it that piqued your interest so much in that area? Um, I think some of it was to do with, like, I was still kind of, playing at the time myself and like with tennis a lot of the time like you're you're in charge of your own practices especially like if you're not a professional tennis player you're not going to be playing a coach um so like a lot of the practices I like I would be designing them so I was trying to like improve my own level and stuff so that was kind of some of it and then um some of it was to do with like some of the content we covered in college and then how it linked to some of the stuff that I was seeing maybe others share online. So like, well, like we were doing some maybe games-based approaches in college. So I kind of, I got started with that and then it kind of led down towards the maybe constraints-led approach. Uh, people might might have heard of that. And um, once I kind of started to read about that and kind of li- learn more about it, I kind of, I got really kind of drawn into it and started kind of, looking at all the theory and all that stuff and um yeah I just really enjoyed kind of learning more about it so 
I kept going and I thought it was kind of, I thought a good way to kind of, well, there were two things I thought it would help me kind of learn more by sharing online and two, I kind of wanted to give or help coaches get started with it because I knew, I know it can be quite hard to kind of dive into the theory or even kind of find where to start. So um, I was kind of hoping to help with that a bit too. So before we go into the details, did it make your game any better when you were doing the practices? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so like we were kind of talking about this on air a tiny bit before we came on that like tennis, the way that people kind of usually practice is very like trying to just build consistency, lots of repetitions and stuff. And they, there's, I suppose they kind of neglect the game-based stuff so there's a lot of um consistency stuff like that and then it's kind of like that and then go straight into a match and like I remember I used to kind of I used to be playing very well in practice and then going to matches and I'd be like what's going on is it like so that was kind of frustrating and that kind of so then once I started to use I suppose more of a constraint side approach or game-based approach I didn't notice a big difference in the way I was playing in matches Perfect. Um, which is always good. It's always good if you try something. I had my uh, I've taken up golf semi recently and I've tried some stuff. I had one very successful round, one not so successful round. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's useful if over the long term it does improve you. Um, in terms of the theory, then what what does the theory state around uh, game based approach? Um, and trying to utilize that as a tool for player development. Yeah. Um. I suppose there's kind of two, or there's a kind of one or two kind of things to kind of mention before kind of fully getting into it is that like, so like the game-based approaches were kind of like invented, a lot of them were actually by P teachers and they were kind of like moving away from the kind of, I suppose the drills and stuff like that. And while they're, they were like a big, a bit of a, a big upgrade and a lot of them align with the skill acquisition. Um, a lot of the time, like they like there was no, I suppose, theoretical framework behind them. It was kind of like up to the teacher. Whereas, um, what the constraints led approach kind of proposes is that like it you it has a theoretical background in like ecological dynamics, and it's supported by like a pedagogy of nonlinear pedagogy, and then that gives a framework or a theory to the coaches to apply. The constraints that approach so then the constraints that approach there's kind of principles behind it and like while the practitioner's knowledge is very important like of the game or whatever like then they use the principles of the pedagogy or whatever to design principle sessions more than just kind of like random game sessions if that makes sense yeah so could you give us an example maybe some of the principles that, that, that you would use or, or what that would look like yeah, so I suppose, like, if I'm talking about nonlinear pedagogy, there's five of them. I might just kind of, like, talk about maybe two of the kind of main ones that would help, maybe. Like, the first one would be, like, constraints manipulation. So the coach is kind of manipulating constraints to kind of guide players towards solutions or to kind of design more game-like conditions. So the second principle that I was going to talk about was like representative learning design. So in representative learning design, you're kind of trying to keep the key information present. So like the key information for action in tennis would be like you'd have to have an opponent present 
and also the information from the ball flight is a key information to kind of like uh, that influences the um I suppose movements that you're going to do like the strokes you're going to do etc decisions you're going to make so in practice we're going to have try have those um present as much as possible it's not that like it needs to be fully representative like it's not like if you're just playing the game you're kind of like I suppose you're using um you're using the constraints to simplify the game for them or you're simplifying certain aspects of the game um so then you can kind of learn um to pick up the key information pick up the things like that that are going to help you perform better in the performance or the like performance in the in competition I suppose um so yeah I guess in a tennis point of view you mentioned the simplification piece so what does that look like if you were looking to simplify an area of a game for for an individual how would you from a session session design point of view look to simplify it uh, yeah so there's kind of two things I suppose that would be useful for coaches if they're listening the first one is you're going to try and make the movements easier but keep the key information present so what that could be is you could use um slower balls you could use balls that are like bigger or whatever so like tennis actually has it has good like um options of different types of balls you can use um so they have like mini tennis balls which are slower and stuff and you can even get slower than that like baby tennis balls and stuff like that and i'd kind of use a variety of the balls during a session depending on like the needs of the player and then um the other thing like I was kind of saying like you're, you're not just playing like the full version of the game all the time so sometimes especially for beginner players there's way too much going on and they're gonna like it's they're gonna be a bit overwhelmed by all the information so you can kind of make the amount of information present less or like not as um I suppose you can simplify it so that they're able to kind of pick it up and like by using slower balls and stuff etc but you're making the task performance easier and you're kind of reducing the amount of information so then they like they're still performing the movements but they're doing it in like an environment that is like what what we call it in what the skill acquisition term would be is you're using task simplification perfect so when you're looking at it from an, an i guess a newish player to the sport there's probably going to be a period where they're learning skills or learning techniques that they've never done before um and one of the things i guess i, I ch- challenge around the the uh, games constraints model etc is that you give them the opportunity to try tasks but some of the techniques required to have success in that task they might not have ever done before or don't know what they're capable of. So if I use a tennis example, it might be that doing a drop shot at a particular moment in time is actually what would be necessary for them to win the point. But they've never done that particular technique before, never learned it or anything. So how do you go around, I guess, developing those new techniques within that environment? Because in my head, that seems quite challenging to for them to whilst they've got some decision to make, to make the decision to try something that they don't know if they're actually capable of it? Yeah. Um, so I suppose, like, with the with that example, like, what's really important is, like, when they're going to use the draft shot. So, like, a lot of the time what I'd do, if I, like, say, if I was going to work on, 
that particular example is that like I play some game in the warm up where they have to hit lots of drop shots or like explore hitting it. I'm not going to tell them how to do it, but I'm going to let them explore different ways of doing it. So, um, I'll use like a real like even with some good players, I'd use like the beginner tennis balls basically. So it slows it right down. They're hitting. They have to move their player, their opponents around the service box, and they get points if they like um hit it into a certain area maybe. So like you're not telling them they have to hit it into the area, but you're kind of rewarding them for it, so they're going to explore it a bit more. Then like if there is something that they're finding very difficult about it, sometimes there's no problem like doing a tiny bit of basket feeding or something to just give them a feel for it, but. Like I wouldn't do it for more than three or four minutes, usually max in a session, if I had to. And like it would be kind of something I'd only do if um as a kind of last resort. Um and then how I suppose if you want them to recognize when to use it, like a lot of the time I put maybe a constraint on the their opponent. So they'd be starting in a very disadvantaged position where like the drop shot is going to become an option um, or something like that. So it's not that like, it's not that we were now, like I suppose that they're, we're, what I'd be trying to do is like create scenarios where the drop shot is useful and get them to explore the ways of doing it. Because like in a, a normal tennis match, if you're learning to hit a drop shot, you might only get two or three chances to do in a match um, where it would be, where, or that's probably how much you should really use it two or three, well, depending on, like the opponent you're playing or whatever, but um, by creating a scenario where that drop shot's going to be useful, you're going to give them more chances to explore it and reward them for exploring it by maybe giving points. But you still, I think it's still important to kind of have something there, like give them, make it like the decision to hit the drop shot is going to be important. So they need to recognize when they need to do it. So they're not just doing it every single time. Sometimes they might see that their opponent is kind of moving forward and they should hit them back before doing it or something like that. So hopefully that made sense. Yeah, no, it does. I think it's a really nice thing that you said there in terms of actually how you layer that into a session. So you've got the, the I'm, I'm playing this over in my head of, of, of how you could do it for a finishing technique within football. You might have a certain area of the goal where if they shoot into that area of the goal, they get additional points, which might allow them to think about striking across the goalkeeper with a particular technique, et cetera. But they still have the other options. You then, if they're really struggling, giving them repetition of it, of maybe going, actually, listen, we're going to go and just get 10, 20 shots off of you just doing this technique so you get a feel for it quickly. But now we're going to incorporate it after that back into a, a live scenario where you've got opposition and it might be that, you know, the goalkeeper takes a shot on one side of the goal first and then has to move across the goal. So now I'm making a decision on what speed is the goalkeeper moving at? How quickly has he been able to get across the goal? Where is his balance? Am I going to actually give him the eyes and go the other way? So I think what what you've laid out there is a really nice structure in terms of how you can incorporate a new technique in whilst covering all the bases and giving an opportunity to explore that yeah so like i suppose what's even if i was doing like those repetitions what i try to do is that like they're doing something called like repetition without repetition so like they're 
they're trying to like achieve the task goal but do it in different ways so like they're not doing the exact same repetition every time so like in that finishing example the striker might be starting in different positions but their their goal is to still hit maybe into the area so like they're going in slightly different positions every time the ball is coming from a slightly different way you could even incorporate different size footballs so like they might have to do it with a size three size five size four they don't really know what's coming so while they're still getting chances to repeat like to like repeat the task outcome they're doing it in slightly different ways and they're kind of still exploring different ways to move so while it's like not I suppose a representative learning task it still like has some kind of I suppose um it's not just repeating the task over and over again no yeah that that makes complete sense um moving on on slightly um in football in particular at the moment there seems to be a lot of one one-to-one coaches who go out and do do quite a lot of isolated practices with individuals um how do you replicate this at home so if you are in a one-to-one scenario or if you're an individual that you don't want to sit on the xbox actually you've got up off your backside and you want to go and practice by yourself and you haven't got anyone to feed you how can people um set up practices or how can children set up practices that allows them to explore these type of ideas but by themselves yeah no it's a great question so like i suppose isolate like those kind of more those tasks when you're playing by yourself um they're obviously going to be so much better than doing nothing um and like they're still an important part of learning because like sometimes if i have no one to play with i'll go up and i'll hit against the wall or i'll practice my serve um but some of it like a lot of it goes back to like even like you know when you were a child you'd be creative you'd be like pretending you're in situations you'd be like replicating a goal someone's tried to or like trying to do something like that you saw i don't know some Thierry Henry or whoever when we were younger tried to score so um a lot of it kind of comes back to it does what I was kind of saying with the goalkeeper that like you're trying to do it in different ways you're not just trying to re- repeat an exact movement every time is like that's it's kind of it's impossible in a game situation where they're like in a dynamic environment where like the problem is going to be different every time so like even with I suppose like if I was practicing my tennis or like I'd have areas in the box I have to hit there because like you those are the areas that even if the opponent's there, that's where I'm gonna try to go. Um, because there's like for example, in tennis there's been research done where they've kind of they've um studied a player serving without an opponent, a player serving with an opponent who just gets it back and the points over, or uh serving with where it goes into live point. And what they found is that like when there was no opponent present, the player prioritized power. So they just tried to hit as hard as they could and they didn't really care where it went. But once an opponent and it went into a point situation, they had to start kind of putting the ball into, I suppose, the corners of the box. They were trying to like move their opponent, make it more difficult for them. So then what you can do in that situation is like you could actually put cones or targets in the corners and that's what you're trying to hit. So you aren't just whacking it as hard as you can and hoping for the best. You're actually kind of doing something that while the opponent isn't there, that's how you're going to serve in a game. So even having things like if you were practicing finishing by yourself, having an area in the goal you're trying to hit, the, I don't know, you might have one of the rebound nets that you throw the ball or, or that you pass the ball into 
you're starting different sides of it every time you're trying different finishes you're going left right whatever you're kind of being creative and exploring different ways of doing it still even though there's no one else there I'll, I'll say on that point it's nice to hear someone say that the isolated practice in that context fine because what i do see a little bit online this is probably the downs bit of social media is like um any isolated practice is an absolute no-go and don't do it whatsoever but i think yeah. that what, what you've highlighted there is like actually the preference is we do these techniques in a challenged environment or a game environment where there's other people around but if the choice is not doing anything at all or this isolated practice that the isolated practice is actually better than that um so i think yeah it's good that you highlight that point because um yeah not everything you read suggests that yeah i think the problem is like a lot of the time people are against like using isolated practice during like team sessions so like the big thing i suppose what's changed a lot over the last even 15 20 years is that like when before when players were practicing or like before when players were younger say they used to be out in the street playing football playing whatever sport all day and then they'd go to practice and it didn't really matter if they did a bit of isolated work there because they were getting so much exposure to different games during the week in there or every day playing in the streets. They'd be playing different versions of soccer. Or they'd be playing different things. So if there was some isolated practice and training, it wasn't too bad. But at the moment, say, a lot of the kids, the only practice they actually do is in during sessions. Um, or if they're practicing at home, a lot of it would just be kicking the ball against the wall. So during the session times, we want to try to expose them to maybe some of the stuff that they used to actually be getting on the streets and stuff like that, more in a representative practices. So then when I suppose you might see coaches, I don't know, doing spending more than half the session on isolated tasks or whatever, it can be a bit of a problem from a skill acquisition point of view. Um, I suppose what is important for coaches to realise is that like, skill acquisition is a part of coaching it's not like the whole thing like it is it's important for improving skill levels obviously but there are times I suppose like coming up to I don't know you might have had a tough game the day before developing skill isn't really the priority it's just a kind of more just getting everyone together having a bit of fun so then maybe you can use some isolated tasks because your goal isn't to improve skill levels but like if your goal is to improve skill levels then it's kind of important that you're kind of using maybe this some of the theory behind skill acquisition in your practice. Yeah, I think, and that's a really nice distinction in your session design, isn't it, in terms of what are your intended outcomes. So it might not always be that skill acquisi- acquisition is top of your list, and if it isn't, then that's okay to maybe go down a, diff- a, di- a different route. It might be that you're looking for a social outcome or you're looking for a competitive outcome that you want to put real stress onto um a certain situation so you're gonna you know maybe isolate it a little bit more to try and accentuate that um I guess coming on to that point during skill acquisition how do you stress it because obviously we know that skills ultimately get tested um most high profile moments if you like if you look at in tennis probably the ability to serve when you when you're you know break point down or something like that or in cricket if you you need to take a wicket to win to win the game so how do you in your scenarios look to stress those um 
stress those moments, stress those skills so that under real in, intense pressure, the individuals are capable of using the, the appropriate technique in the right way. Yeah, so like I'd use a lot of kind of game scenarios during a session. So like it would be things like um you might start the game 15 30 down on your second serve. So if you lose that point, you're now 15 40 down and you're kind of in trouble on your serve. So like what is nearly nearly every single task or like practice activity during a session, I'd have some element of scoring. So, like, the player, what I find is that, like, even from doing it myself, is that, like, you get a lot more comfortable with the score being there. And, like, you try to make it kind of, like, as much as possible, it's kind of, like, realistic tennis scoring. Um, and then, like, if I want to stress something, so, like, if, say, if there's a player that loses concentration at the start of every game, and they always end up going down in the game. I'd have like the first point in every game is two points. Uh, so like you're either go 30 love up or 30 love down. So like they focus more on that. Or if they're um, like sometimes you can do things like if they're struggling with their second serve that they only they only get one serve per point or something like that. Or you, like things like that. So like it's a lot of a lot of it is like coaches kind of being creative with the scenarios they're setting up to try give the players what they need. So like if they're team that is struggling to maintain a lead or if there's a team that kind of like is struggling to, I suppose, break down a team, then you're trying to create the scenario where they get to explore different ways of doing it and then they get more comfortable doing it, which will then transfer to a game. Or oh, sorry, you're muted, Michael. Sorry. You would have thought three years into <laughs> this, I would, would, uh, would be able to do that one, but I'll leave that in as well. Um, yeah. I think that's a really nice way in terms of like the focus bit, for example, that's a really nice little add on that you could have that I'll, I'll definitely steal that one, particularly for, for our lads in terms of like farting, uh, starting fast and making sure that you're able to, you know, take initiative and be on the front foot. Um, so, so that's a, a really nice piece in terms of um, you having success in this area. Is there any one particular athlete that comes to mind that, or player that comes to mind that you've worked with that you think that this approach that you've had with them over longevity, you've seen real, I guess, one enjoyment because that's ultimately why everyone plays sport, but then two success in terms of the starting point that they've come to you with and then where they are now or where they're, where they've ended up. Um, yeah, like I suppose there's actually only been like one or two that I've had for more, like a kind of extended period of time. Um, I, like say I have had P students or whatever over year over like a year or two that you'd see big progress but from like a tennis point of view um like there there was one player who like I worked with a lot and like they would have been they got what I found was like over after being using being like I suppose exposed to this approach or whatever for a period of time that their results improved and that like they started to enjoy kind of like playing the game more so like they started to actually enjoy playing matches and being challenged or they kind of started to really enjoy kind of being challenged in practice because like I remember at first like they'd be kind of they used to kind of be frustrated because in but like say if you had grown up 
with tennis coaching or whatever, it's like being coached the way it usually is. Like you're not really supposed to be making that much mistakes in practice and there are things to be avoided. Whereas like I'd be purposely putting them in situations where they'd struggle because like that was the area that they needed to improve. And like the level of like uncomfortable was like they were still achieving some success. So like they'd, they'd be successful maybe six, seven times out of 10 but they'd still be like kind of struggling on three or four of them. So like it was some that is hard when you're coming from somewhere where like you're not supposed to be making any mistakes and they're bad and it shows that you're not good or whatever. So by, but I suppose they got a lot more comfortable then being in those situations. And then I think it, it definitely did transfer to, the matches and stuff because like her she got a lot more comfortable in the matches with scoring like if she was down it, she had been in that situation in practice so like it wasn't like it, it's it was something that was happening um she'd she'd be in situations where she'd be break point down on her serve a lot and stuff like that and you just get used to them you get a bit i suppose more comfortable being uncomfortable um i kind of i did find it with myself too in matches that like even more like when the matches are tight and stuff like that you're not getting as nervous or whatever you're used to being in those situations it's kind of normal being in the situations because you're playing so many different match scenarios that you're kind of like you just play as you normally would whereas when I was younger like you'd be I would have felt a lot of pressure from the scoreboard so like the big points and stuff like that whereas once you get kind of used to them and being in those situations it's kind of you I don't know you're you're you just kind of perform differently and better I think no that makes sense it brings up a nice point you mentioned there around um that I guess that want for perfection and that probably being an industry thing I'd imagine it is the same in, in most sports to be honest with you how do you go around challenging that? I know you mentioned that you've only got one or two players that you've worked with in tennis for a substantial period, period but obviously you've got your, your PE kids as well. How do you go around incorporating an environment where they understand that failing is actually okay and that if you're failing, there's an opportunity to learn from it rather than viewing it as, if I don't get 10 out of 10, that means I'm crap at this sport or, or whatever it may be? Um. Yeah, so like it can take a while, I suppose, and it can completely depend on the individual as well. So like some people are like challenges a bit more at first than others, and they'd be more willing to kind of put themselves in scenarios where they can be challenged. So um, a lot of it is kind of getting to know the person or getting to know the people as much as you can. And then like for some people, like a small challenge is enough, whereas some and more comfortable with bigger ones and you can kind of move them on faster than the others so a lot of it is kind of meeting the players where they're at seeing what they need and kind of gradually kind of moving them towards more kind of thing and then like I suppose the way that coaches would frame mistakes so like I wouldn't ever like if a player misses I don't give out to them or like I wouldn't like anything like that I'd be telling them that I actually want to see that, like, well done. That was good. that you, like, you, like, your intention behind it was good. Keep that up. 
like I, that's what that's exactly what I what I want to see. I don't want to see like I don't want to see you like not taking a risk there or whatever, especially in the practice or whatever. So a lot of it is like how you're kind of interacting them interacting with them as a coach too. And how I'm I'm reading your Twitter page as we're going along here because there's loads of good stuff and there's a bit about competition. Um, where you've discussed a case study about 40 players that were divided into smaller teams with skilled and less skilled players playing together. The respondents reported that coaches distributed playing time equally and did not emphasise the importance of winning. They said by the time they were aged 13, 14, 15, they could have gone to a system where they would have won 6-0 across all the boards, but they were more interested in development rather than than winning competitions, which I think is a really nice segue into to what you're discussing here. How do you manage that compared to, I imagine there's going to be some coaches that winning is the be all and end all that are going any given Sunday with their, you know, seven, eight, 11 year olds and are really focusing on that. So how do you, how do you, I guess not tell the, the the people you're working with that that's the wrong way because you don't want to be this disrespectful to them. But how do you go around managing going, right, this is what I'm really comfortable with and this is my values and here's why? Yeah, I suppose it kind of come, a lot of it would be kind of what is, what do you, what is your measure of success? So is your measure of, of success that you won an under 12 tor- boys soccer tournament or is it that you, that the team you've started with had, 25 players and all 25 of them are still playing when they're 18 or you win and only 11 of those players are playing when they're 18 who's more successful so like the case study you're talking about there was actually on um, Erling Haaland's team and he turned out pretty okay yeah so like what, what it, I think there was when they were 8 I think there was 40 of them started on the team and by the time they were adults there was 36 of them still playing eight of them were professionals and Erling is Erling obviously so um yeah so like that coach while winning wasn't like developing was their priority and like winning was I suppose a byproduct of it as they got older like they did have some they did have success and like their philosophy philosophy behind the team was like as many as possible, as long as possible, as good as possible. So like they wanted to keep as many of the players in there for as long as they could and make them as good as they can. And then I suppose uh, with kids, like it's so hard to predict what way they're going to develop, but you want to keep them as long as you can. Um, like there's going to be late developers, there's going to be early developers. You want to like make them all as good as you can. So that was the philosophy behind that team. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a really interesting point. As you said, it's talent ID, and we've had some people on this podcast before, like Joe Baker, saying that the challenges of talent ID. So, um, yeah, for sure, you know, keeping people in the system. And I also just think from a lifestyle and health point of view, the more people that stay in, in, in sport, et cetera, the, the better it is for all involved. You know, you want them to have a lifelong love of sport. So being in a position where, you know, they, they feel valued and, and whatnot is, is a really good space to be in. Um, moving on slightly, um, I noticed, and this is a bit of a plug for you, so you might hopefully get some some additional things here. Um, your Twitter spaces that you've done um, with a selection of other individuals, Alex Lasku, who's been on the podcast before, Craig Morris, sim- uh, similarly. Um, 
how could you just describe to people what that space is and then I guess from your perspective what have you contributed what have you learned is there any key takeaways you've had from those Twitter spaces chats that um that have really resonated with you yeah um I suppose the first one we actually did was I think it was back in January um it was or what we what we are actually trying to do at first was we were picking out like the different some of the different principles of skill acquisition and we were talking so the first one we did was actually representative learning design so we were like what do coaches need to know so we were trying to like I suppose the goal was to make it at a level that coaches would be able to understand and take take or have takeaways that they could use nearly straight away and introduce them to the topic so that um, they might be I suppose motivated to explore it a bit more um, and I think like we haven't done one in a while but I think we're going to maybe try to get one next month um, and the week the one after we did um, the role of the coach and the third one I think was the role of isolated practice so like we were trying to make like take I suppose issues or like take um topics that were kind of relevant for coaches, and then um like I suppose add some of our some theoretical insight or some like practical insight from like I think Craig might have been on one of them, but like I suppose Stuart Armstrong was on two or three of them. Marco Sullivan um working in football was on two or three of them. So a lot of them like had practical insights that they were able to give and like they they've worked a lot of them have worked with coaches and coach development um capacity so they're able to give insights from that too and is there anything that from those conversations that you've had key takeaways and gone oh i'm going to implement this or actually i'm going to adapt how i work because of that is there any key takeaways that you've you've had from those from those um there's all like there's always some some things that you pick up um i haven't listened to them in so long that i can't there's, there's nothing that stands out immediately um like there was a, a lot of it was just it kind of helped me to i suppose understand what kind of coaches needed more because like we'd be getting questions in from coaches and you know seeing areas where they maybe mightn't have understood more and then I'd be able to kind of let some of the stuff I'd put up on Twitter over the next week or two would kind of be aimed at that. Um, so that was probably the kind of biggest takeaway, like the questions and stuff coming in were quite helpful. Cool. And then in terms of where this is heading towards or where this moving, obviously we've seen, I guess, a real, a real push in this area in terms of, trying to get more people to engage with it and hopefully engage with kids. You've got their play their way initiative that's recently come out with a load of individuals discussing using games more rather than isolated practice and considering how uh, children want to be coached and, and kind of reaffirming that. Where do you see this going over the next five, 10 years? Where do you see it going? Where do you hope it goes? Yeah. What what do you think that looks like for you? Um, Where I hope it goes would be that like um just more coaches start to kind of embrace some of the some of the like it's not that they like a lot of it is like a lot of the I suppose skill acquisition stuff from like an ecological dynamic stuff it's very like um 
it focuses on is it focuses on like the individual quite a lot. It gives them like quite a lot of um autonomy and stuff like that. So it's quite like what they call it like learner environment and center, but like it there is quite a focus on the learner. So it is giving them a lot of like it's giving them what they need. It is more, I suppose, player friendly. So like you're you're not focused like our focus usually wouldn't be on winning or like, like it would be on developing. Um so I think that if the approach was adopted more that there'd be more players still more there'd be less dropout. So there'd be players would be more likely to stay in the game longer. Um so do like I suppose there are a few barriers to coaches taking up with the theory and stuff. Like it can be quite difficult to access. Um there can be quite the language and stuff can be quite difficult. If, and like especially I suppose with grassroots coaches who they volunteer twice a week or once a week and they work a full-time job and they don't have time to spend studying skill acquisition and because it's not a lot of it isn't presented in coach education then it's quite difficult for them to access it and I can understand why they're not because they don't have the time to be doing it and like what's being presented to them in the coach education is kind of like what they think they need to know um, so it's kind of like, I suppose, making it more visible, making it more accessible and just kind of tailoring it to the, I suppose, like in Ireland, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, that, like most of the coaches are those volunteer coaches that aren't getting paid. They're just there. They do there once or twice a week and that's all they really have time for. So it's how can we influence those coaches and how can we get the ideas across to them? Yeah, no, it's, it's similar over here in terms of um, a lot of volunteers, coaches that are going to be accountants or lawyers or labourers who are then going to, on the weekend, obviously do that. And I think, as you said, for them to give up time is is thing is is crucial. And they do that because of the love of the sport and love of trying to help kids. It's just trying to make them show them, show them a way that might be appropriate to try and help the individuals in, in their environment. Yeah, because like I think they're brilliant. Like they give up their time, um. So then, like you can't really criticize the way they're coaching because, like, they're giving up their time. They're they're going. They do their courses. It's what I suppose maybe presented to them in the courses needs to be changed a bit. And how can maybe I don't know, like in some clubs, I suppose there might be one developer that's getting paid. And that they're being they're like what they're giving to their volunteer coaches will help them or like maybe club philosophies, things like that. But yeah, I can't like with those volunteer coaches, it's not like I don't um I suppose it's very I understand why they wouldn't be engaging with the skill acquisition stuff. Yeah, and again, it brings an interesting point in terms of the structure of sport in, in this country, right? There's other sports that are um spoken to Nick Scott, who was on here recently, he was discussing around the format of Italian sports and the fact that they get government grants for particular clubs. I know from from speaking to people from Germany, the football teams out there, they're essentially in charge of like six clubs around their region and they have to support those clubs. So if you're a Man United, you have six to eight smaller local grass, grassroots clubs 
at the younger age groups, which you then have to go and support and send coaches to and, and, and whatnot. And that allows obviously people that probably are more, more educated on this content purely because that, you know, they, they work in it every day, they live it, they work for institutions that are going to embrace it um, to go and deliver it to the children that hopefully keeps them in the game. So I think it's a really interesting um, dynamic into what sport actually looks like in this country and, and, and how, maybe it could be better moving forward potentially which is a, a definitely interesting point um, well, that does sound like like even that example there that sounds like it would be really helpful for the clubs too it's like they're gonna develop a lot more players which they can like well it seems like it might be a chore for them it would actually be really really beneficial for them because they'd have a bigger they'd be able to develop a lot more players keep them longer and then make the decisions on who they're keeping and who they're calling much, much later, which would enhance their, I suppose, talent development systems, which would be... Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to go into this on air. Yeah. I'll catch up with you about it off. Yeah. But it was an idea that I had around this space. So I will, we'll catch up on that briefly after um, after we finish, because my idea is similar to what you said there. I think that there's some ground from both ends and actually it would support both sides, which would be really useful. Um. But yeah, last question for me, which is if I was to ask the students that you you work with or the the um, children that you coach to describe you in three words, how would you hope they described you and why? Yeah, either way, it was hope rather than because it depends on the day. <laughs> no, um, I would say one that like the first one that I'd hope would be like caring. Um. Second one would be, um, I'd like if they describe me as fun. It's like during the coaching sessions or whatever that like they were the sessions were fun, and, um, like well they might use the word directly kind of like knowledgeable that he kind of knows what he's doing I suppose. Perfect. Yeah, and no, I think um. As I said, the reason I say hope is I think it's a really illuminating yeah. one for, for practitioners. It's like, actually, what do I want to be? So when I'm coaching or working with these young people, what do I want to be? And then you can go to yourself, would they actually say that? Or is that me hoping? So, yeah, it's a really nice question. But I think, yeah, really three really good answers. So, um, listen, Philip, really appreciate your time. Um, a really good in, uh, conversation. I think really well balanced as well in terms of how you can utilise these techniques um, in a in a practical setting so yeah really appreciate your time and hopefully catch up again soon yeah thanks for having me on michael really enjoyed it Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.